Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So for today's episode, uh, we've got something that's uh, very, very close to my heart um, and very topical at the moment. So you, you can't go too far without seeing in the press some sort of discussion about the semiconductor industry and supply chain problems and et cetera, et cetera. It's causing issues with deliveries of lots and lots of things. So it's an absolute pleasure for me to welcome Dr. Craig Fisher uh, from Max Power Semi to the uh, to the show. And we're going to talk about what he is doing um, in his particular area of the semiconductor industry to uh, to try and uh, launch new technologies and, and interesting developments to, to make things better. So welcome to the show, Craig. Thanks, Ryan. I hope that was a, an appropriate intro <laughs> no, for you. Yeah, it sounded good. Um, so maybe if, if we could just get started, um, you know, to tell us about yourself and, you know, where, where you're from and, and how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah, so I'm originally from Coventry in England um, and I started my career in 2001, really, where I undertook a, a modern apprenticeship okay. um, for an aerospace company, also in Coventry. Um Worked there for, for some time and whilst I was doing my apprenticeship, studied electronics um, okay. as well as obviously learning on the job. Uh, initially electronics manufacture, then getting more into electronics design, predominantly analog uh, electronics and power electronics. Uh, and like I say, I was stud studying in parallel. Uh, once I finished my apprenticeship, uh, I was offered by the company. Uh, they were taken over now, actually, but they still remained. We remain focused on the development of uh, aerospace braking systems. Yeah. Um, and I, I found a, a role there in the electronics design engineering department uh, in which I worked. And again, in parallel with that, I studied initially for a bachelor's degree uh, in electronics and then also followed up with a uh, master's degree at Warwick University, surprisingly also in electronics. <laughs> there's um, a theme here. There's a yeah. theme here. I, I, I mean, just to jump jump in. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll go on there. I mean, that because that, a lot of people now, you know, young people go to university, mm. Or, or not, and it's a difficult decision because of fees and, you know, everything. But I think a lot of people have a sort of bit of a funny view about apprenticeships, um, right. which I strongly disagree with. But it's it's really interesting to see that you've managed to successfully, I mean, you, we'll, we'll get on to the doctor bit eventually, mm. but you've gone, I mean, the whole way from an apprenticeship, through a degree, through a master's, through a PhD. Um, do you think, you know, it, it, how achievable is that for other people, you know? Yeah, so I mean, was it hard for a little bit of background? Initially, it was. Um, I, I did undertake uh, sixth form initially, you know, yeah. at the same school at which I went to school at. But I really struggled with being sat in a classroom for the, the same classrooms that I'd been in since I was ten or eleven years old. Yeah. Um, the fatigue was really setting in, and I, I really wanted to to get into industry. Uh, I knew I wanted to continue education. But for me, doing that as well as working in a in a relevant engineering role was was quite important. 
and so that's that's why I made the decision I did. But I remember my parents; they were because you know you've got to go to university, you've got to do this, yeah, you've got to yeah. do that. Um, I think a lot of kids see that pressure, you know, and and you know, there's some fantastic uh, apprenticeship and degree apprenticeship opportunities. But you know, more if more people could look at that as an option, yeah. I think it'd be fantastic. It, it is. I think it's a good thing, you know. And um, I, I was lucky enough to work with other, you know, people that were similar uh, age to me at the time, yeah. and. Uh, most of them had the same sort of mindset that they wanted to progress to university, but they all had that sort of fatigue, I think, with being sat in the, in the classroom um, for such long, I say long periods of time, you know, constantly from, yeah. from week to week. Uh, and you wanted to break free. What, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but going back to what your question was, it was at, time, at times challenging, you know, doing, the, the study was in sort of part-time mode, and then the work was so typically it would be four days a week uh, at the company one day a week at the university um, certain universities uh, had that, that set up um, but I think that's quite rare as well perhaps that degrees are typically aimed at people that do want to study them full time and I found this with when I did my masters um, it obviously took two years rather than one um, and it was split quite, it was a full-time course effectively. There was no part-time option. So my time was a lot more split up across. I was visiting the uni from day to day sort of thing. Um, but my company were very supportive and um, that was good, I think. But it, yeah, it was, there were a lot of late nights, as you might imagine, trying to, you know, do the work, do the work that I was doing as well as, um, you know, satisfy the requirements of the master's program. Um, that was quite some, yeah, some effort. A big times. challenge, yeah. Yeah, it was. It's put you in a great position now, though. So, so sorry, I, I yeah. jumped in there, but you were so you're at the point of doing your masters in elect, uh, electronics, and then yeah, electronics. Um, you then obviously you've done a PhD. Mm. Um, what what was that in? And you know, yeah, okay. So so whilst I was at uh, Warwick University studying um, for my masters, it was in the second year of that um, in which I did the power electronics module. And I found um, the power electronics of, of all the modules that I'd studied. Um, and I had had some industrial experience, like I mentioned, with the power electronics. But um, I found, and I think a large part of it was due to the, the, lect the, the lecturer that I was lucky enough to have was very motivating in this field. You know, he was a really great guy who um, really inspired me, I've got to say, to want to go into this field. You need to give him a shout out. Uh... Yeah, this was uh, Dr. Angus Bryan. Okay. I think he's now in industry in the okay. UK still, but he was a fantastic lecturer um, who taught me a lot, I would say, in, in that field of power electronics, but more his energy and his enthusiasm for the topic okay, you know, really inspired me, like I say. And um, I, I decided towards the, the, at the end of that module, I, I approached uh, Dr. Bryant to inquire, is there any opportunity perhaps to, um, to study for a PhD, you know, um, under yourself, if possible? Uh, he said no. Um, <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> but that was because he was leaving the university uh, okay. uh, to go into industry. And what he would do is you know, um, recommend me to uh, his, his uh, professor at the time. And so he did. Um, and so I came in contact with Professor Phil Morby, who is uh, uh, one of the leading, I okay. would say, professors in the UK in the field of power electronics and especially with silicon carbide power electronics. Um, and so, yeah, Professor Morby, he gave me that opportunity to study a PhD in his group. It was at this point when I decided, okay, now it's probably not feasible uh, if I want to do this and at least in a 
reasonable time frame to keep uh, my employment and do a PhD. I would have, I envisaged that taking years, like years and years, yeah. um, way <laughs> yeah. beyond the three years that it takes to do a, a PhD anyway. And so, yeah, I made that, it was quite a difficult decision, as you might expect, to, to leave my employment and then go full-time. So doing my PhD was the first time I was a full-time student. Um, but yeah, I made that decision and I think it was the right one. It was really uh, a, a great time to, you know, to, to study and to get into that field of silicon carbide. The activity in silicon carbide had been going on for some time, but I think around that time, 2010 this was, it seemed to be really taking off. And we, it was around that time when first devices were being, the, the uh, first switching devices were being commercialized. And so the, uh, the attention was growing, I would say, and it was a really hot topic. And so, yeah, that was, uh, that was how I got on to doing my PhD. Okay. And, and what was the specific... Uh sort of focus area for, for your uh, study? So I focused on the, uh, the development of high voltage um, silicon carbide power diodes. So when we say high voltage, the target voltage here was 10 kV. Okay, 10,000 so 10, 10, volts. 10, volts, yeah. Um, that was the, the goal. And a lot of the work involved um, trying to enhance the, the properties of the material and also optimize the device so that it would perform competitively, let's say, at those that high blocking voltage. So the conduction loss, the on-state losses would be low. Because um, one of the issues, particularly at that time, was the, um, the carrier lifetime in the material is probably too low, in as-grown material, too low to have a, um, a low on-state um, voltage drop. Okay, device. so let's let's roll back a little bit. Um, so carrier lifetime, so just uh, un unpack that. Yeah, okay. So, so carrier lifetime we can think of as being the average time that an electron or a hole uh, exists for in a, uh, in a bulk of material. Okay, yeah, cool. You might imagine it's on the order of microseconds or nanoseconds. Yeah. It's not very long. Um, but when, when you have a, a bipolar... So a, a, a semiconductor device that has a P-type region and an N-type region. Yeah. Um, when it's in conduction, you have holes from the P-type and um, electrons from the N-type that, that layers that sort of sandwich a thick blocking layer. Uh, so a lowly doped thick blocking layer that uh, is capable of blocking a very high voltage, but also it's relatively insulating so in its sort of lowly doped uh, sort of format, it would uh, have quite a high voltage drop across it. Yeah. Um, and so high power loss, if the device was in the application, the power losses would be high. Um, so bipolar devices, they have the, um, what we call, they have this conduct conductivity modulation uh, feature, which is, that's, that describes when the electrons and the holes are injected into the, the bulk, uh, this thick blocking region. And by being injected into that um, blocking region, they lower the resistance. You imagine there's more conductivity now in that lowly dope region. Yeah, yeah. And so um, they lower the resistance okay. of the device. Um, so that's, that's you, for these high voltage devices, you need really bipolar parts to be um, competitive in terms of its on and losses. And you'd always have a sort of trade-off there with 
that because of the, the voltage level, that, that balance between the, the voltage level and the losses, I guess. It, exactly. Yeah, it, it's a trade-off. Um, also, you might imagine that switching losses become more of an issue. The, the more charge that you're injecting into this block, the more charge that you need to get out of that region when you're switching off. And so there is a there is a trade-off, um, you know, and also from material to material, you might find that um, a uni, so in silicon carbide, for example, a unipolar device, so a device that doesn't have this conductivity modulation, would be it would would offer a um, let's say a satisfactory trade-off in on-state losses versus blocking voltage compared to silicon, yeah. uh, silicon. In silicon, really, above perhaps 800 volts or so, you need to start considering um, bipolar devices. Yeah. And so you see above 800 volts or so, the, um, you, you would switch to an IGBT. Yeah. And so here you'd be limited in terms of switching frequency yeah. uh, and, and, and losses. And, and, uh, whereas silicon carbide, you can push this a lot higher. Yeah. So perhaps even several thousand volts you could still have a high-performance unipolar device. So one of the benefits of going to silicon carbide. But then um, up at 10,000 volts, that's pretty unusual now for any semiconductor. We're into proper, like, n nothing works at that sort of level territory, aren't we? That must have been quite a challenge to, to I mean, everything's a challenge at such a high voltage. Yes, it was. It, it was um, difficult. I mean, the, the first devices that were fabricated, they didn't block anywhere close to ten thousand volts. Um, but we did some refinements and and got to got to the target. Oh, um, brilliant! Okay. Yeah, but as you say, in terms of commercial application, that, I mean, there are applications that would utilize such a device. But um, I think perhaps the, the volumes are so low that it doesn't make it such a commercially viable yeah. opportunity at the minute. Well, so I mean, if anyone, a lot of people listening will know sort of medium voltages and, and all this, but effectively, when we're talking electric vehicles, we normally are 400 volts or 800 volts, and, and it, at 800 volts, we'd be using a 1200 volt device. But at 10,000 volts, that's you're into the kind of medium voltage transmission grid. Uh, so it's yeah. things like uh, solid state transformers and uh, sort of grid connected electronics on the medium voltage system, not the uh, the regular sort of stuff that comes out of the wall. It's, it, so, it, it, you know, you, it's a really important part of our energy infrastructure, but it's it's not a high-volume uh, application yet. No. Um, no, exactly. I mean, this, you know, it was early-stage research, but the, the project was for a, a grid transmission. Um, it was a grid, sort of grid transmission sort of project that I was working on. Um, and so, yeah, the, the voltage ranges, as you might expect, were the devices were targeting these high voltages. Yeah. yeah, and it's some. I mean, I, I know in some uh, mobility applications, so people are talking about really high voltages for um, some aerospace things, and uh, you know, sort of higher power in into the thousands of volts because of the advantages in lowering currents. But then you 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 get loads of other issues and stuff. So, so you did you did your PhD successfully. So c congratulations, well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you manage it in the three years? Yeah, it took slightly over three years. Okay. I think it was about three years and four months. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, that's impressive. Yeah, when I when I submitted it. Was, yeah, I think in February 2014 when I submitted my thesis and then had the Viva a couple of months after. Stayed on as a postdoc at the university uh, to continue my research in um, silicon carbide power device. But 
moving towards more um, MOSFET devices um, rather than the diodes that I'd originally been working on as part of my PhD. Um, really, the, the focus shifted towards yeah, MOSFETs. Okay. Probably, yeah. So, Craig, you're here today as the UK Managing Director of a really exciting company called Max Power Semiconductor from the USA. Can you tell us some more about them? I am the first um, employee, let's say, of Max Power Semiconductor UK. Um, one of my remits is to build the team here in the UK, um, which is what I'm doing. So the UK subsidiary has been set up much more recently than 2008. Um, only been around a couple of years. Um, and, uh, yeah, my focus is on... Yeah, developing silicon carbide power well, electronics. I, I do apologize to nope, your uh, no Californian problem. colleagues yeah. <laughs> uh, on that. But, ah, well, okay. So, if, you know, the whole purpose of this, that's, I'm learning learning now more and more. So, so you've, you've again, though, still quite a brave move to go in on something like that um, and quite different to, you know, the university environment, your PhD and things. You, you wanted a bit of excitement in your life again? Yeah, so, I mean... I'd, after I didn't spend so long as a postdoc, just over a year, um, and then I went into industry. I, I worked for a, unsurprisingly, a semiconductor company. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, also, unsurprisingly, in the silicon carbide uh, yeah. field, still. Um, yeah. This was outside of the UK. Yeah. And I spent some time there. Um, but after a, a while, I moved back to the UK, um, and then carried on my career in the field of silicon carbide power electronics but more towards systems uh system design spent a little bit of time in the system design side of things but then yeah more again more recently so i've worked with with max power now for just under two years yeah um and yeah i was approached um you know with the you know with the offer that you know let's we're gonna we're gonna develop silicon carbide power electronics in in the uk um would you like to be involved? And you know, yeah, I said, this would be great. You know, sem working in the semiconductor industry is definitely my uh, preferred, my preferred industry to work in. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> so, so what is it about uh, Max Power that you know? Obviously, it's a semiconductors is a a lot of people think of it as an industry characterized by these huge global players. Um, you know, what do Max Power do, and and what have they got that attracted you to uh, to to make that jump in with them sure so yeah the way i see it was max power have a very strong ip portfolio in uh device power device structures um mosfets lateral structures as well which i am not so focused on but a range of different uh types of device that they have um a comprehensive ip portfolio for and i'm um a big believer in the technology you know the advantages that the technology offers over um you know other um technologies that are out there both in silicon and in silicon carbide and so it was really that uh the potential i think uh for the technology to you know to to change you know the the industries that it, it's utilized in and when you say the technology do you mean so silicon carbide devices in general or do you mean more specifically some special uh attributes that max power have managed to come up with yeah both uh, okay. but definitely the second point uh is is quite important there are unique advantages of the the max power ip that um lend itself to the device being able to offer lower um conduction losses lower switching losses as well uh, as well as being um 
also manufacture it quite easily manufactured um, at ah, the same time. Which is a big challenge with silicon carbide yeah, devices. Yeah, I mean, de definitely manufacturing silicon carbide is, there are a lot of similarities to silicon. I think this is one of the reasons why um, some some companies got it in early because they had their silicon fabs existing and they, um, they, they could run silicon carbide through the line only with some, let's say, minor additions in terms of the tool set requirements. Um, so yeah, that that's that was a big that was a big reason why. I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you tell us more about the two key types of MOSFET structure, planar and trench devices, and what that means and how they work? What are the differences between them? If we think about uh, MOSFETs, they could be we could think of maybe two main say, call them flavors of the type of device. You, you would have a planar MOSFET um, in which the gate oxide, so the gate uh, layer, is formed on the planar, on the, the flat surface of the wafer. Um, you also have the, the trench MOSFET um, in which you etch trenches into the silicon carbide and then form the, the oxide, form the gate and the oxide layer on the trench sidewall. And what this means is that you can, if you think about the single MOSFET cell, you can more densely pack um, cells on, on, the, on the die, on the wafer. And so this, compared to a planar device, a planar uh, device typically requires larger cell width. And so you have less cells uh, per unit area. And so the planar device typically needs a larger area to have the same on resistance. And so then that means that the trench device can be smaller for the same on resistance. And it means it can pass a higher current for the same um, area. And so you can put more dye now on the wafer. And as you know, um, when you're running the wafer through the line, it doesn't matter if you've got 10 dye on there or 10,000 dye on there, the processing time and cost will be the same. The same yeah, so yeah. the more you can pack on the wafer, the, the better. And, and, and of course, one of the big I mean, silicon carbide wafers themselves are pretty expensive and you can only get them from a few places. A bit of a supply crunch is actually at that end. So anything you could do to get more. But so, someone, I, just, I can't remember actually the podcast, but in one of the old episodes where I, I remember talking to someone from one of the it was on maybe on semiconductor um, a while ago, and and they made the sort of comparison that for um, sort of processor technology like conventional silicon devices, every year they get smaller and smaller and smaller and faster and faster. But actually, the bit that we see is the faster. The, the, reality, the reality is the thing that's making it faster is the fact it's got smaller. So the wafer has got more and more population on it. So therefore, the cost per unit has just gone down and down and down yeah. and down. But actually in power devices, you're kind of constrained because you need a certain unit of area to pass a current and there's not a lot you can do in terms of changing the amount of devices you've got on a wafer, you know, with, with, uh, to, for a given power or, or current of device. So then this sounds actually like maybe there is something that you could do, um, maybe not in quite the same way as on the, how, how the processes have gone over the years, but um an, an ability to get more out of the same wafer on power yes by by going to the trench over the planar structure you can gain i would say in your um 
in in the area that you require per per die. There are perhaps other processing um, techniques that you can use. You can also shrink the, the cell. But one one of the things with the trench is that it does lend itself much better to device iteration after device iteration. You can more aggressively shrink the cell compared to again a planar device, um, and so you. you by shrinking the cell width, again, you're further improving your resistance times area product. So um, you're, you're, you know, you're improving that figure of merit there. And so the trench device, like what happened with silicon, it will offer advantages over the the planar, especially as as more manufacturers and release generation after generation, you would see, a, I think, a, a bigger gulf in performance compared uh, okay. to uh, the planar. Um, and then after that, what we may see is the transition to superjunction devices, these charge couple devices, which have been around in silicon for some time. Um, I don't. I think there are some research articles that show this in silicon carbide, but commercially none available yet. Um, quite a complicated process to make the superjunction. Superjunction is where you have alternating N-type and P-type let's call them pillars, in that blocking region that I was talking about. So you can further improve the, um, the trade-off between on resistance and blocking voltage. And so you can, let's say, make your blocking region thinner. And how do they how do, they do that? <laughs> so I, I've got to say, I'm no expert on, um, on superjunctions. I think there are different ways of doing it. Um, Sometimes you have to grow um, and then perhaps implant the the alternating sort of um, dopant species in in sort of sequential fashion. So you grow, you implant, you grow, you implant, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, until you get to your required um, thickness. So quite a laborious process and an expensive process. Yeah, um, lots of processing steps, uh, which is, I think people often. I mean, it's been fascinating talking to you here. And, and the, the more that I learn about the semiconductor industry and the manufacturing processes, and I mean, it's mind blowing actually what is done now and, and how complex these processes are. And the sort of, um, we, 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 before we started recording, made a comment about how, you know, it's probably the only industry where you need a PhD to set the machinery up, you know, and, and actually the skill level and knowledge base in the manufacturing side is, is, is off the charts these days, let alone the device design side. And I, I wonder if the industry is changing as a result of that because the, the, there's such a high interlink between manufacturing process technology and device design technology. It's not like the old sort of silicon days where you know, it was all so well established and I'm not gonna say easy, but you, know, you, you could ship it out to a fab somewhere and three fabs would deliver you the, exactly the same outcome. Whereas uh, with silicon carbide and other, other compounds, semiconductors, it feels like it's just so difficult <laughs> to make these things. Um, there's, a, there's a much higher linkage uh, on the, between the design and the manufacturing elements. I don't know if, if you, do, do you think that's a, a valid kind of? I do, I do think that's valid. I mean, I, I can't speak for ha having worked in the silicon industry before uh, myself, but, yeah, I do find that AIDS, because um, I didn't mention, but Max Power are a fabulous company. So we work with external foundries um, to develop our, our products. And it's, a, yeah, a very close 
collaboration uh, that we have to undertake with the with the fab that we're working with for a given um, product to, to you know to really bring that product through the the design cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that. Um, so again, a, a lot of people listening will know uh, Fabulous um, and uh, the sort of fabbed companies. So there's a it, it, even that approach has is really changed uh, in the past. That used to be quite common for fabulous uh, companies and the fabs and and then there's now these complicated hybrid models where some people do some of it and inside and then outside and the whole uh, the, the industry I, I see is going through a lot of transition on on that side um, do, you, do you think that max power will remain a fabulous company you know moving forwards is that you're going to just uh, focusing down on the design aspects yeah I, I see that for the foreseeable um you know, we, we, we have quite close relationships, as you might expect, with certain foundries. Um, and so that, that's the key, really. It's um, maintaining or building new relationships with said foundries to, you know, to, to, to develop these products. Because, yeah, we don't see that we would have our own fab, at least okay. in the foreseeable, no. And that's the, the, the um, I mean, everyone sort of sees it now in the, in the press about, semiconductor shortages and, and power device shortages particularly um so there's a, there's a big sort of supply crunch and and you know especially with uh, it feels like silicon carbide devices there's a, there's a lot of challenges out there at the moment with the supply of, of product do you guys see that as a, as a sort of challenge for your business or, or is it an opportunity it's definitely a, a challenge um we, we find it of course there, there are opportunities still but um yeah you know, some of the lead, tides, lead times involved um, can make things difficult at times. But, you know, we, if, if we plan accordingly, um, yeah, I think the, the opportunities are still there. So, yeah, I think a lot of people are faced with these, uh, with the supply chain issue um, that's been around for some time, like also we, we talked about earlier. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's something that we, we have to, you know, be accustomed to, yeah, yeah. Say. yeah, and constantly juggle and and uh, and manage. Yes, it is. Mm. It is, yeah. And um, and what's the what kind of application areas and and I mean actually even the I think the the business model is quite interesting. So what what's the the business model for Max Power and what kind of application areas are you aiming for? What's what what are your key target markets? Yeah, some the key markets I would say so. Um, are the automotive EV um, EV market, which is clearly a growing market uh, and forecast to be over the next years. Um, similarly, the the rapid charging infrastructure market is another key market, um, and again, one that we expect a lot of growth over the, in in the, in the twenties. Um, but definitely, the automotive. Um, industry is by far the, the biggest market for silicon carbide and i think we're seeing now the um more and more uptake by um ev manufacturers to include silicon carbide in their um, systems sort of transitioning as as the the battery voltage increases uh, we, we i think we see a trend towards the higher battery voltage um which then really drives the transition to silicon carbide because of what we talked about earlier we can um we can have a lot lower losses uh than the silicon devices that you would put in there so 
it may be that the silicon carbide devices that you use are more expensive uh, at the outset, but the um, savings that you can achieve in terms of perhaps battery pack size or the um, or, or the, the the increase in range will mean that over the over time the the, the devices are paid for themselves. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of shift. I think in the automotive industry in the past they've been a bit guilty for you know, they overly focus on a component and tend to be obsessed with the cost of the component without necessarily thinking about system level cost. But with silicon carbide, as you mentioned, the components are always significantly more expensive. But at a system level, you can either bring a benefit or or actually they to you know, they can make other stuff smaller, like the cooling system can be reduced in size and those sort of parasitic um, components and, and uh, drawers and stuff are, are, are taken away somewhat. So it's an interesting model. It's, 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 it really is a, the implementation of silicon carbide is a, is a really interesting example of systems level thinking. You mm. know, it's like we get away from the obsession with the component costs and into yeah. a, a more holistic view yeah. to make it work. But it, it's, it's a great opportunity for compound semiconductor mm. manufacturers in that, uh, in that space. So, so with, with Max Power, are you then, are you supplying directly into OEMs or is it like, how, how does, how does that part of the business model work um, for you? Yeah. So we, we do work uh, with, with tier ones um, historically as well as tier twos as well. Um, like I mentioned, the, the UK presence of the company is only, um, it's quite recent. And so, yeah, one of my, one of my goals really is to, to build up our, uh, our presence and our, our business in the, in the UK as well. So also with, yeah, tier twos, tier ones. Okay. And <clears throat> are people buying sort of standard, uh, modules or is it bare dye that then gets packaged or, cause I know there's a, there's quite a few different business models on that side what, where, where do you guys sit on that front yeah so um discrete package is still quite um let's say popular okay yeah. even for relatively high current applications perhaps in these in these um interesting applications where um motors power electronics are integrated you uh, perhaps a module um you could consider too bulky but a um the right type of discrete package uh, that's let's say has a low profile can be quite useful. Um, modules, well, bare dye, yeah, is is also something um, that that we you know that we offer. Yeah. Or, um, modules, we, we, I mean, given the power electron, uh, the power ratings um, that we're looking at for future applications, we would expect that our devices will go into module, and this is something that we're also uh, we're looking at. Ah, okay. Right. Interesting. And that, that, cause it's really a huge, there's kind of an open book there at the moment in terms of optimizing the power electronics systems and the, you know, that there's different arguments for discrete devices or bare die systems or module systems or how that, how do you see that shaping up in the future? Yeah, I would think for, um, automotive, the, the module would be typically preferable for the drive tra drive tra uh, drive train inverter um it offers the i think say maybe an improved ease of cooling um as well as i think lower um lower parasitics 
if the if the module design is right. So, given as well the the currents that are involved in the in the drivetrain inverter, yeah, I think module is probably the the way to go on this. Though there are I know, commercial examples of EVs that use uh, discrete packages. Um, so, yeah, I guess it depends on the the the, the, the overall system designer, but. Um, but we, I personally think that the module is will become dominant or is dominant, and yeah. So pack it, pack, and uh, again, a lot of people listening will know what we mean when that. But effectively, the the, the sort of three kind of categories that we're talking about here. So a module is effectively a, a block which has got devices mounted inside it with typically some other bits and pieces, and then comes out to large format connections, and it can be uh, sort of easily mounted in a. Uh, power electronics module, um, discrete devices. You would you, you are sort of packaged up discrete devices. So they are they're sort of individual components, uh, and then the bare die that I mentioned is is some people um, are building what are called sort of hybrid circuits, where you actually rather than package the module and mount the module on the board, you you take the literally bare die semiconductor device, you mount that directly onto a, a board and kind of build a, a circuit around that. So it's there's quite a quite a lot of uh, variations and, and and differences in in the way that these sort of um, high power power electronics modules can be put together. And I, I think you know your interesting answer with, on the modules and um, you know sort of agree that that seems to be a clear direction of travel. But it does also feel like there's not quite a right or wrong answer yet either. There's still you know there's still lots and lots of development activity happening across the board. Yeah, I agree that there is no right or wrong way of doing this. Um, yeah, it's there's definitely an argument for either either approach. I would say, yeah, yeah. I, one one of the things um, I I think is quite important, and I wonder what your view on this would be. So, sort of talking about where the value sits now in an, in a drive line for an electric vehicle, obviously. The kind of mechanical element of the driveline as a relative proportion is quite low and there's a higher <clears throat> proportion of value in the electronics units and the and the e-machine the motors and things like that so the the sort of suppliers and the oems that are going to be more successful in the future will be the ones that have the better offer you know on, a, around that power electronics module and and better partnerships and relationships or better expertise on the electronics. It's becoming much more of an electronics problem um, in in general. I don't know if you, would yeah, you agree well, with that? When I think of the the cost makeup of the EV compared to the ICE yeah. vehicle, the um, the battery is definitely the, the largest cost, isn't it, in the in the drivetrain. But the what you do with the power electronics can, like we discussed, drive the battery size. And so by including more efficient power electronics, um, so silicon carbide over silicon, that's more higher performance silicon carbide over other silicon carbide, then you can shrink the, the battery, yeah. drop that cost massively to make the, the overall cost of the EV um, lower. And it can also drive at the motor end, smaller motor. Yeah. So um, yeah, that does mean that the... The focus, I think, or at least the, there is a big, um, there's a big incentive to really have a, the most um, efficient power electronics uh, unit that you have in, in the that you can have in the drivetrain. Yeah, 
yeah no that's that's, that's interesting uh and and a, and a clear kind of direction there of more and more effort and research effort and uh collaborations and you know supply chain uh, integration and all sorts of things to to deliver on that and one i mean we talk about power electronics but I, a lot of people forget that in an ev <clears throat> you know we've got the, the sort of the, the main uh unit which is a power uh, drive unit or you know people have different names for those um but basically the electric motor that drives the vehicle and the electronics that go with it to make that work uh, but then there's also quite another there's a number of other significant power electronics modules on the on the vehicle so you've got that main traction drive plus uh typically a, a, a charger battery yep. charger which is you know they're getting more and more complicated with yep. high voltage architectures and things so um and then a, a dc to dc converter as well in in the system so there's there's a lot of power electronics content yeah in in the drive line in addition to I would say just, but mm. because that's definitely not just. But yeah. so you've got the, the the inverter plus some other really significant uh, power conversion devices in there as well. Do you see there being much commonality across those? Like, or are they are they too distinct? No, that's that's a good question. So I think anywhere where you require a, a, a you know a voltage, let's say above at or above four hundred volts you could successfully implement silicon carbide. Um, any, any lower than that, it doesn't make sense. Um, the, the, the silicon is perfectly fine for, the, for those, uh, let's say, more peripheral applications. But I would say the, the higher voltage, so above now 400 um, volts, then, yeah, silicon carbide, it makes sense to use. And, yes, you would have, um, they could be the same, a similar, at least, device, of course, if the, um, if the, Drivetrain inverter require it has an 800 is an 800 watt battery there. Then you may need the 1.2 kV uh, silicon carbide MOSFET. Whereas if the DC to DC converter is at lower voltage, then. Um, but you in terms of the current though, you can of course just parallel up. Um, and I think one of the the goals really uh, for the industry in general is to perhaps have this the scalable type module where you can um, have the same sort of footprint or so it's. You know, segment of footprint and then just uh, depending on the current rating of the particular system that you're interested in just include more die uh, and then you you can provide provide that so they've got an element effectively of sort of common componentry through the different uh, systems on the vehicle yes i think you know i think you if you could keep it common mm. uh, and just say replicate then that makes makes a lot of sense and what do you think in terms of so it's obviously the traction inverter we've, we've talked about and there's clear advantages there from an efficiency point of view but then with um one of the limitations on the traction inverter is you're in your your load is the motor and your switching frequencies are somewhat governed by the speed and design of the motor whereas with chargers and uh dc to dc converters you've got much more flexibility in terms of pushing higher and higher switching frequencies with those to shrink down some of the other components um, on them, you know, capacitors and inductors and things like that. Do you see that being something people are starting to take advantage of in terms of driving those those devices to to higher frequencies, which, which would obviously suit silicon carbide devices as well as, as high-frequency device? Yes, so like you say... Um yeah, by going to the higher switching frequency on these, should we call them static um, applications, then yeah, you can shrink your magnetic components quite significantly. 
And so, yeah, the silicon carbide does does open up that. Um, that it's one of the reasons why rapid charging is an attractive market for, for silicon carbide. Um, yeah, it does open up that, um, that application to go into higher switching frequency and using the, the silicon carbide for that. It's far beyond what you could switch those um, those the, the um, silicon devices with mm. the same blocking voltage at. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I'm just I'm cognizant of the time, and uh, we've got to get you you away. So we're, we're we're about running up to time. So to just to sort of draw things to uh, to a bit of a bit of an end. I mean, it's been a fascinating discussion. We probably could go on all day. I think uh, <laughs> like where where you down. Um, but what what so looking forwards, you know, over the next year or two, what are your sort of big hopes, and and what are you excited about happening in in the industry and and with you and your company? I think overall. Uh, I, I'd hope that, you know, the, let's say the issues around um, fab capacity and even material supply may may ease. Um, I think one of the interesting things that's happened in silicon carbide, though it's been happening for a while, is the transition from six-inch wafers yeah. to eight-inch uh, wafers. Um, companies uh, in the material growth side of things are, have been working on eight-inch material for a long time. Um, and it's been expected, I think, for quite some time, um, but none is commercially available yet. And so seeing the uh, the transition to 8-inch, I think, is particularly exciting. As it op opens up then, um, of course, more volume. Yeah. And so perhaps even lower, co you, you can erode the, the cost of the device even further now by fabricating on 8-inch eight, eight compared to 6-inch. Uh, which then may lead to, I think, more widespread uptake uh, of silicon carbide. Because that is one of the challenges at the moment where I think if you, if you go back five or six years, there was these forecasts of where the price was going to go. But actually the demand has been so high, new applications, that actually um, the cost of, of silicon carbide hasn't quite landed where people expect because there's just so much demand out there for new applications. Yeah. So more more capacity uh, might might end up helping that but then it's a vicious circle more more capacity more demand you know it, yeah it is it is <laughs> where um, do we stop yeah when i thought you know been forecasting um you know the, the what i expect the trend would be over the next years uh, for device cost in silicon carbide yeah it it's never been uh, the reduction has never been as much as what i thought it might be uh, and we can only learn from that and yeah maybe going forward perhaps don't expect the uh, cost erosion that, um, that some people might expect. Yeah, yeah um, but we, I, I guess we will see. You would like to think that by going to 8-inch, it should force force it down somewhat. Yeah, okay. Um, wow, fantastic. So so that's, I mean, I, I've, I've learned so much from that. I think, uh, you know, a little, if anyone wants to talk to Craig about uh, high-performing uh, trench silicon carbide devices and, and all the exciting stuff that Max Power are doing, I'll put uh, some links down in the show notes uh, so you can uh, connect up with him and uh, and, and make further contact. Um, but it's it's really exciting to see what you're doing. It, obviously, great. Um, I mean, I you know genuinely didn't realise in terms of the their presence in uh, in the US already. So fantastic that they they've come across to the UK and that you're building a team over here as well. So it's uh, it's it's really great to see what you're doing. Uh, and thank you for giving me a little bit of time this morning to talk about it. Yeah, no problem. That's Ryan. Yeah, it's been good. Okay, cheers. Great.